Today's reading is from Acts 26. If you have your Bible, feel free to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible today, um, you can follow on the screen behind me. Hear from the Word of God. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by a God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things and oppose in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief of priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted, even, persecuted them even in foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief of priests. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to whom I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment, 
And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Word of the Lord. Good morning. Y'all can do a little better than that, right? Good morning. Thank you. Uh, children, off you go. And uh, as they go to the rear, um, let me introduce myself. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan. And uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. It's my pleasure to serve you in uh, uh, God's Word this morning as we'll be looking at Acts chapter 26, as you just heard read. But before I do that, uh, I have uh, an opportunity for those that are here, a few of you that are those that are here. I have in my hands here five little Gospel of Johns. You can see how small they are. So it's the book of John, just in a small little booklet. Uh, it would take you about two hours to read this, tops. Uh, and so I'm going to extend an offer. The back of this little book is my business card. You can see it right there that has, yeah, it's not much, it's just a business card. But nevertheless, there it is. It's my contact information. And so uh, and if you are interested in the Christian faith, you're not a Christian, you understand yourself consciously to not be following Christ, but you're interested in knowing more about Christianity, uh, I want to extend an offer to you this coming Friday night. We'll sit down and discuss this book in our office. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these, and I need a runner to run back there. Joey's going to be my runner, and I'm going to set them on that back table. Joey's going to set them on that back table. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Joey. He didn't know he was going to do that, but uh, grateful. So if that's you, uh, please pick one up. Contact me. Let me know that you're planning to come, because if you don't let me know, then I won't plan to see you. But I hope that uh, I'll get at least five of you to come out. So he's going all the way to the back, and he's going to find somewhere else, I guess. I don't know what he's doing, but it'll be back there somewhere. All right, let me pray for us uh, as we get started. Father, we thank you for the hope of Christ, the hope of the resurrection, uh, of not only uh, the hope of resurrection of Christ the Lord that happened 2,000 years ago, but the hope of the resurrection for all of the redeemed, where we will get to spend an eternity with you. Father, we come in here with a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of concerns. We pray that, God, you would speak to us in this moment so as to see that you are the chief delight. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me allow, let me uh, introduce you to four people, uh, four people. These four people represent uh, four perspectives on Christianity or four, we might say, four responses to the Christian faith. Uh, the first one is the most radical of them all. He is the current leader of ISIS. I'm not sure I'm going to get his name right, but I'm going to try to say it correctly. His name is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And so he has declared war against Christianity, amongst other religions. And in every encounter that he and his army has had in relation to meeting Christians, uh, he has se- we have seen four things that come out of him. him. Uh, that one, he has Christians to be forced into conversion. Secondly, uh, those Christians are brought into slavery. Thirdly, uh, they're uh, brought to extortion. Or fourthly, they're executed. So he hates the gospel of Jesus Christ so much that he's willing to kill those that are allegiant to it. So he sees Christianity as deceptive and therefore dangerous. Second person I want to introduce you to is familiar to a lot of you. He's the science professor from the University of Oxford. His name is Richard Dawkins, famed atheist. He's written many books against religion in general, but he has a special penchant for Christianity. Uh, He has not sought to kill Christians, but instead he is quoted as saying the following, that when one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. In other words, Dawkins sees people like myself that are Christians as deluded. Christianity is a delusion. Third person I want you to meet is a woman by the name of Linda Lascola. She was an author and she has written the following. Quote, I know what an important figure Jesus is in Christianity, but I must admit that he never meant much to me. When I hear about people joyfully finding Jesus, I wonder why such strong negative or positive emotions were not stirred in me. So Linda probably represents most people in the United States, where at the end of the day, she just doesn't really care. One way or another, she finds Christianity to be dull. Dull. Finally, there's the late Clive Staples Lewis. C.S. Lewis. 
the famed uh, atheist-turned-Christian professor of literature at Oxford and Cambridge. He's uh, written many books. Many of you are familiar with his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. He once said, quote, I believe Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. For Lewis, he saw Christianity as his chief delight. In fact, I think if we were to get all four of those people in the same room, Abu and Linda and Dawkins and Lewis, if we bring all of them in the same room, I think that Lewis would say the same thing that he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, when he said that Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If it is not true, it is of no importance. But the one thing that it cannot be is of moderate importance. I think that's what he would have said in that environment. Which tells us, doesn't it, the interesting thing that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi seems to understand the gospel better than Dawkins and Linda Liscola. So I wonder which one of these four people might describe how your life has reacted to the message of Christianity. I want you to notice I said that very specifically. I didn't ask what you believed. I asked, how is it your life has responded to the message of Christianity? Do you see it as deceptive and therefore dangerous? Do you see it as delusional? Or do you see it as dull? Or finally, do you see it as a delight? Well, wouldn't it be great if we had something in the Bible wherein we could go and see the Lord's responses to those four things? Well, let me introduce you again to Acts chapter 26, where we see the Lord's responses to all four of those things. Here we will be introduced to the Apostle Paul, who was the kind of Abu Bakr uh, al-Baghdadi of his day that turned not only into C.S. Lewis, but more so he was used as a chief instrument of God to spread the gospel to the nations. And so my hope this morning is to persuade you, as Paul does before the king, to see that Jesus Christ is full of delight. That he is the hope of our lives. Therefore, the other options of deceit or danger or delusion or dullness, they are out of the question. But instead, Christ is our chief delight. That's what I hope to persuade all of you with this morning. Let me set the context for us of Acts chapter 26. Uh, You heard Paul's life here, and we'll talk about him a bit more. But he is on trial because some Jews had accused him of stirring up a riot due to his belief about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this commotion ensued. Paul was then taken into custody. And one by one, he's been ushered into various courtrooms. And this is the highest courtroom here in Acts 26. He's testifying in front of this guy named King Agrippa. We might call him King Agrippa II. Uh, He's a king of Israel, but he's really just a Roman puppet. So this guy, uh, King Agrippa, the one that Paul is talking to in this courtroom, he is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. The same Herod that put all of those babies to death at the time of the birth of Christ so as to try to eradicate the King of Kings, Christ the Lord. That's this guy's great-granddad. This is also his his granddad, is the uh, man by the name of Antipas, who was the king that actually beheaded the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. And Agrippa I's dad, or sorry, Agrippa II's dad is Agrippa I, who was the same one that put to death the apostle James, the son of Zebedee. So when Paul says there in verse 3 that King Agrippa is familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, Paul was not lying. King Agrippa was very familiar with Judaism and its controversy. His families had been at the forefront of it all. Also in the room here is the Jewish governor uh, of the region, Festus. Uh, He'll come up more in a bit. But for now, let's go into the courtroom and let's hear Paul's testimony and see first if Christianity is deceitful and therefore dangerous. We'll spend most of our time here. In verses 4 to 6, we hear Paul talking about how he was once a major Jewish leader of the strictest party. In fact, he says in verse 11 that he was so opposed to Christians that he, quote, punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I used to be on the same team as my enemies. And not only was I on the same team as my enemies, I used to be the leader of one of those uh, of the enemies on the team that is now opposing me. He was actively and uh, he was actively pursuing and persecuting Christians. He hated the gospel and those that loved the gospel. We see in verse nine that he saw that he ought to be doing this. He thought that he ought to be doing this because he understood Christianity to be dangerous. That is, 
until the risen and ascended Lord Jesus met him on the road to yet another appointment with persecution. In verses 14 to 18. And basically we find here that Jesus confronts the, the man by the name of Saul at this time that becomes Paul. He confronts him and calls him to faith in the gospel, repentance of sin. He tells him that he intends to use him not only to reach the Jews of Judea, but the Gentiles, the nations. So Gentile is a non-Jew. We get our word nations from that word. And so that's the part that the Jews hated. You see, you have to understand that Jews of their day, they understood that uh, uh, that their understanding of the Bible had them to be this particular people and that the nations had no part in it. And so therefore, as, as a result of Paul carrying the gospel to those nations, they, we find in verse 21, it says, for this reasons, the Jews, in, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. They hated this notion of the gospel being carried to the nations. Paul was changed by the grace and love and mercy of Christ personally. He went from hating Christianity to being hated by the Jews. He was given eyes to see the beauty and majesty of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus. He was brought to see that to persecute a Christian was to persecute the King of Kings himself. He was forever changed by Christ and for Christ. But I want you to notice, guys, the instrument of change, the instrument of change. I'm sure there's plenty of times when Paul's sitting in prison, people are beating him up, making fun of him. He's on the run. I'm sure there's plenty of times when he's going, is this really real? Did that real, that vision really happen? Is this stuff really in the Bible? Am I just deluded? Maybe. He's wondering if he has the right message. And so it was again, the grace and mercy of Christ that changed Paul. But the instrument of the Lord's grace was the Bible, because that's where Paul goes to solidify the message that he believed. Now, we've got to remember, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was trained by the best people. In other words, Paul knew his Bible. He was trained by a guy by the name of Gamaliel. It would be like being trained by, you know, insert your favorite Bible scholar. He was trained by that guy. He knew his Bible. He probably would have had large stretches of the Bible memorized. And so, look at his response to the accusations of deception and danger in, to, uh, in Judaism. In verse 22 and 23, you'll see it behind me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So the Jews believe that the message of Christianity and Paul in particular was deceptive and therefore dangerous because it was something made up. It wasn't true. They were twisting the Bible. They were starting this new sect. That's how they understood it. They saw it as a cancer that was growing inside of their religion and it needed to be eradicated. But again, look at Paul's answer. He's saying, King Agrippa, Festus, I'm only saying what the Bible has always said. I'm not saying anything new. In fact, I'm saying something old that has now come to fruition. I'm announcing to you that all those things that the Bible said was going to happen have happened. We look back in verses 6 to 8, and he says, I'm on trial here because of the promise made to our fathers. The promise the 12 tribes of Israel hope to obtain. Why do any of you think it incredible then that God raises the dead? In other words, Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not some deceitful and dangerous cancer that needs to be eradicated from inside the halls of Judaism. Paul is saying that what we now call Christianity is nothing more than the answer to all of God's promises. So friends, I think it's easy for us to forget that Jesus was a Jew. His parental lineage is carefully documented for us in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, he's taken to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day, just as it would have been prescribed. We see Jesus continuing to attend all the Jewish festivals, like the Passover meal. And most important of all, he affirms the teaching and the authority of the Old Testament. And in fact, he understands himself to be the fulfillment of it, as we read in Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. Same language Paul's using. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And did you notice where Paul was going to persecute Christians? Did you catch that? Look at verse 11. He's going to persecute them in all the synagogues. Synagogues would have been where we now understand Jewish people to gather. 
And that's exactly what we see happening in Acts. It was the Jewish feast of Pentecost where the Spirit first fell upon Jewish believers in Acts 2. And so these first Christians did not understand themselves to be some newfound religion, some new sect, as Paul's enemies were accusing them. What they understood, what was happening, is in the Old Testament, there were all these symbols that were pointing to the substance that was Christ. Jesus was the answer to their great hope. Look again at verse 23, and you can see the heart of those promises of God in the Old Testament. Paul recites them very clearly. This is the heart of the teaching of the Old Testament. The Christ, that means the word Christ means Messiah or anointed. It's not Jesus' last name. He must suffer. Note that word must. Circle that word must. Must suffer. And that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the nations, to the Gentiles. So let me just show you a handful of places where that happened in the Old Testament, what Paul may have been pulling off of. Just a handful. I could give you plenty of them. Let me give you a few. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is right after sin has entered the world. Adam and Eve have come in and rebelled against God. We find the Lord promised Satan that he would, quote, put enmity or struggle between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So in other words, the Lord promises there's going to be this fight now as a result of sin entering the world from between the demons and mankind. Exactly what we see. But don't miss what comes next. This is really kind of nerdy stuff, but really, really important stuff, right? Notice the switch there from second person uh, uh, plurals to first person singulars. In other words, the you to the he in that passage. He, so it goes from there's going to be this struggle, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's going to be a he that's going to come, that's going to bruise or crush the head of Satan. And in the process, this he is going to be wounded, though not destroyed in the process. Does that sound like anything you might be familiar with? This is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Exactly. Jesus Christ lives a sinless life, never sins. And as a result of his... uh, coming to uh, to the earth to live his life faithfully and to offer his life as a sacrifice as he teaches the Bible. He's condemned. He's thrown up on a Roman cross. And there he is bruised. His heel is bruised. He's wounded. He's pierced. And he's crucified for the sins of all those that trust him. Absorbing the wrath of God. Paying the penalty of sin is buried. And this is what we celebrate every Sunday. On the third day, he rises from the grave so as to illustrate that the payment was made in full. That there is hope beyond the grave. He does crush the head of the serpent, which is exactly what Paul says in in Colossians 2.15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We can think about uh, Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. This is the Old Testament. We hear the words that Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Indicating that he was being forsaken so that those of us that trust him do not have to be. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. later in that passage, in that psalm, we read that there's a company of evildoers that encircle him. They have pierced my hands and feet. Great specificity here, guys. Verse 18, right in that same passage, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. All of these things are fulfilled in the cross. And this psalm is written hundreds of years before he comes. And the reason why Paul says that Christ had to or must suffer was because of what we read in one of the prophets, Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. It says, surely he, this individual, has come, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. Why? Here's the must for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, friends, Paul knew that just as the law had previously required the blood of a lamb on the night of deliverance from Egypt, so there was a sacrifice that would be forever needed to take away our sins. Those were all shadows pointing to the substance that was found in Christ. It couldn't ultimately come through the blood of bulls and goats. God was going to have to deal with the punishment himself and enter into the story and take care of that must. And that's what Christ did clearly 
as the Old Testament prophesied. And the resurrection piece was also prophesied in that the promise of Genesis 3, where we see the Christ would suffer, but not have his head crushed. In other words, he'd get hurt in the process, but unlike Satan, he was going to make it out. We see inklings of the resurrection there. We also see in Psalm 1610 uh, that the Holy One would not see corruption. Paul cites that exact same passage earlier in Acts 13 to point to the messianic promise of resurrection of Jesus in Acts 13. We also see in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, calls for a resurrection, as does the image of the prophet Ezekiel in in chapter 37, the valley of dry bones, when he speaks the word and life comes. And of course, we have the promise of a forever king in 2 Samuel 7. But perhaps most convincingly about this resurrection from the Old Testament is the pattern, the theme of the Old Testament in its entirety. Where time and again you have themes of death, life that then leads to death or pits, slavery, and then on the other side of that life. We see that Jesus, we see, see in the beginning, Genesis, we find that there's all kinds of chaos happening. God floods the world. There's life, but then there's badness, then there's flooding, and then what comes out of it? Genesis 9, Noah, life. We see the same thing happening in Egypt. There's life in Israelite. They go to Egypt, they're flourishing, but then they go into slavery. And yet they come out through those baptismal waters and onto the promised land. We even see at the end of the Old Testament, wherein uh, the Jews are exiled because of their disobedience. And yet some of them come back and rebuild the temple. Life comes on the other side of it, but they still are waiting for that substance at the end. This is the theme of resurrection all through the Old Testament. Those shadows that pointed to the substance. But finally, this notion of the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's what Paul's on trial for. We see that's found very clearly in Genesis 12, what's called the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Look at verse 3 in particular. It says that in you, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish families. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And that had always been the plan of God from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. And as we see fulfilled at the end of the Bible in Revelation. Paul is saying, I'm saying what this book, we believe, has always said was going to happen. And it's found its fulfillment in Jesus. The gospel is not deceptive. It is not dangerous. That's what he's saying in that courtroom. It is delightful because it's the answer to all of God's promises. Because Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises. And you're wondering, well, Nathan, is that how the way Jesus understood himself? Yes. I love the interaction in John 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. And he's asking more information about Jesus' understanding of himself and this gospel. And Jesus says to him in John 3.10, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? I love that. You see what Jesus is doing? Like, how do you not get this, man? You should know the Bible. In John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But it is they that speak of me. Jesus understands the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is about him. And we get the greatest Bible study in the history of the world. You ask me, Nathan, if you could be at five, any, pick your top five moments where you'd like to be in history. This would have been one. Probably at the top of the list. Luke 24, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking with his disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, same language Paul's using, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. Himself. Jesus understood himself this way as well. So if you're going to go to, if you were to go and do this, which I'd encourage you to do, go to Wikipedia and just Google, when did Christianity begin? You're going to see, it's going to come back, and they're going to tell you that it started, Christianity started in the first century when Jesus showed up. But what Paul is saying here to King Agrippa and Festus and to us is that Christianity can be traced back to the very beginning. It's not some new sect. This is not some deceitful and dangerous lie that needs to be eradicated. This is the delightful answer to all of God's promises. Where God is reconciling the world to himself in and through his son, Jesus. Therefore, we all need to repent and believe this gospel and then spread it all over the earth until Christ comes to finish it all. So if you, friend, have believed or are believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a harmful or it's a lie, then friend, look and see. Jesus has fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. I just gave you a handful. And they were written hundreds of years before his time. This is not coincidence. It's providence. Which is why Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man come to the Father but through him. 
But maybe that's not you. Maybe you have not believed that Christianity is deceitful and therefore dangerous. Maybe for you, you find Christianity uh, just delusional. Well, look there in verse 24. That's exactly what we see. Right after Paul says all this stuff that we just talked about, right after this, it says there in verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, listen, I can feel Festus's argument here, right? All Christians should feel this argument. I mean, let's stop and think about this for a moment, right? We believe that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became a baby, was born of a virgin, never sinned. By the way, that's the biggest crazy thing right there. He never sinned. That's what we believe, that he atoned for the sins of the world, of all those that trust him, that he was buried, that he rose again. A man rose from the dead on the third day. And he's coming back on a white horse to fix all the world. That's what we believe. It sounds little like a science fiction model, model, uh, uh, story, doesn't it? And we just have to admit that. We can feel Festus's argument here. If we're being perfectly honest, it sort of sounds this way. I can remember going to India and, and, and going to some Hindu temples and learning about what Hindus believe and thinking to myself, this stuff's kind of crazy. And then I stopped and wondered, well, gosh, I kind of believe some crazy stuff too. I mean, my goodness, I... I don't have any confidence that the federal budget's ever going to be balanced. Much less that a man could raise from the dead. I mean, right, we got to feel this argument. You're delusional, right? Festus' charge is real. So are we Christians just delusional? Are we just falling back on tradition and blindly believing a bunch of nonsense? The answer to that is no. Take a look at Paul's response in verse 25 and 26. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. To him and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Two things to point out there. Paul not only believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is confirmed and prophesied in Scripture, he also finds the gospel first to be rational, in other words, it's not delusional, it's comprehensible, it's sane, it's reasonable. And one of the reasons he could say that was because the second thing in that passage, this gospel has not been done in a corner. In other words, it's been out in plain view. Unlike other world religions that began with some personal revelation hidden from the sight of the world, Paul recognizes that the promises of God were rational and they were all played out in plain view to the world. This is exactly why the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This is also what we read about from the Apostle John, also one of the followers of Jesus. 1 John 1.3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Also look back in Acts 26. Verse 13, notice that when Paul is receiving this heavenly vision, he's not alone. He's got other haters of the gospel with him that corroborate that story. So the claims of Christianity, while certainly supernatural, they have happened out in public. They are historically verifiable. All of the names, the places, and the rulers of the New Testament have been verified by even unbelieving uh, historians. So, for instance, Pontius Pilate was, was indeed the Roman governor at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Festus and Agrippa were ruling in this place at this time. And as opposed, this is important, as opposed to uh, the logic, the popular logic that is often taught in our universities, the New Testament manuscripts have not been copied so many times that we've lost their message or their message has become corrupted. The telephone game, so often believed. It's just simply not true, friends. We have thousands of manuscripts from antiquity whereby we can cross-reference to see that the veracity of the New Testament is in fact true. Let me give you an example of this. Imagine if the United States Constitution was stolen from down here in the National Archives. It's our rule of law. We would be able to piece together all kinds of writings and other speeches in order to make sense of the fact that we do, in order to know that we have a law and what that law is, because it's the law of our land, right? How much more is the church? that believes the Scriptures to be the very words of God? Would they be careful to preserve those things? But also, even if we move outside of the Bible, uh, we look to first and second uh, century historians that are, again, not Christians. 
that corroborate the message of the New Testament. So we can think of guys like the Jewish historian Josephus that's affirming these things that we see. We see people like the Roman historians Tacitus and Pliny the Younger and others even that are confirming that there's this guy named Jesus that's doing amazing stuff that's put on trial and is executed. It is reasonable and it's happened out in the open. But I want you to notice, guys, that Paul is putting a lot of emphasis on the resurrection to illustrate this has all not been done in a corner. You can see that in verse 8. If you look down in verse 8, you can see that there he's putting a lot of emphasis there on the resurrection. But if you were to go back and look in Acts 24, verse 21, this would have been the trial right before this one. Paul says that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In other words, what he's saying, Paul is saying that, listen, if the resurrection is true, if that actually happened, then therefore all the other stuff about Christianity has to be true. And so he knows you get into the heart of the resurrection The rest of it has to be true. So I'm going to give you six, I'm going to briefly give you six ways as to how the resurrection is indeed reasonable and the most plausible deduction as to what happened since it happened out in the open. Six reasons as to how the resurrection is indeed reasonable and not delusional. First off, we have eyewitness testimony. Again, this is all this notion of being done out in public. Eyewitness testimony. I've already shared with you Peter, John, and Paul's testimony. I already shared that with you. But also we know from Scripture that Jesus appears to other apostles as well as other women, people like Mary Magdalene. And if this isn't enough, we read in 1 Corinthians, a very historically reliable document, by the way, if ever there was one. We read in 1 Corinthians 15.6 that he, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You see what Paul's doing there? He gets that this is going to be crazy to believe. And yet he still understands. Listen, you don't believe me? Go talk to hundreds of folks that are still alive today that will say they saw him. Second reason why the resurrection is the most plausible deduction and reasonable is the embarrassing details that we have. So if the resurrection of Jesus was made up, why would you include details that would hurt the testimony of its leaders? Things like including Paul's denial of Christ numerous times as well as the collective abandonment of Christ by the disciples when Jesus was taken away. The collective denial of Christ's resurrection when it was reported. Everybody punks on Thomas. He wasn't the only one that was doubting. Why include that? And perhaps most embarrassing of all, for that time, would be be the fact that Jesus, in His resurrection, the first people that He appears to is who? Women. Women's testimonies would not have even been received at this time in a court of law. Why make that the first people that are bearing testimony to it unless it's true? Third reason why the resurrection is reasonable, as Paul is saying to King Agrippa, is the transformation of the disciples. Think about Jesus' brothers, James. Now, can you imagine being raised in the home of Jesus? I mean, like, that'd be weird, right? First of all, he's not doing anything wrong, right? But that's strange in and of itself. But, I mean, you imagine your brother going up and saying, I'm the Messiah, Right? It'd be strange. So it doesn't surprise us in John 7, verse 5, when it says that none of his brothers believed that he was the Christ. Yet in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Jesus appears to James, his brother, and that same James becomes an early leader in the church of Jerusalem. In other words, James is transformed. Jesus' own brother is transformed, believing that his brother is, in fact, the Christ. He's transformed. Think about Paul. How do you explain the transformation of Paul? How does a guy go from being an, uh, being the kind of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, how does he go from that to C.S. Lewis like that? How does that happen? Unless it's true. Or think about the apostles. How do they go from being 11 dudes that were scared to death, hiding in a room after Jesus was crucified, to then going on to be these amazing evangelists that are willing to die for the faith? How does that happen in such a short amount of time? And for that matter, how do you explain the transformation of thousands of first century Jews whose worship changes on a dime. Jews had been worshiping that sort of shadows for thousands of years. And then we find in the first century, all again, very historically verifiable, where in a day's time, thousands of Jews begin worshiping the substance of Christ. Their worship begins to change. How do you account for that? Unless Christ really was resurrected from the grave. Fourth reason, building off of this point, is the willingness to die for what was known. The willingness to die for what was known. Listen, guys, people die for lies all the time. Happens every day. 
But men don't knowingly die for lies unless they stand to get one of three things historically. That is money, power, or women. According to tradition, we see that 10 of the 11 disciples die horrendous deaths. And they preached monogamous marriages inside the covenant of marriage. They preached against adultery, and they didn't practice it. They also preached the need to build your treasure in heaven, not on earth. Their lives are lived in simplicity, just as Jesus instructed them. And lastly, whatever power they had, they gave it away and served others. Just read the New Testament, and you'll find that very quickly. And so the most plausible deduction was that the disciples died for their faith because what they saw was real and they were willing to give their lives for it. Fifth reason, the enemy at least implicitly affirms the resurrection. Look at Matthew 28, verse 13 to 15. We read the response of Jesus' enemies after they learn of his resurrection. And tell me, by the way, guys, if this doesn't sound familiar, like a familiar argument today. Here's the priest's. The guys, the same guys that put Jesus to execution, listen, here's what they say. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day and even to this day. Right. So if the resurrection was just a fabrication by the disciples, why would the enemy feel the need to create a false narrative? Isn't it more likely that Jesus was resurrected, therefore they needed to fabricate a story in order to explain it away and keep their power, which is what they wanted. Which leads me to the final point regarding the reasonableness of the resurrection being done out in the open. Sixth, just produce the body. Just produce the body. The Jews lobbied the Romans to crucify Christ. So they didn't love the gospel. The Roman guards would have been executed had they not done their job in seeing Jesus actually executed and finished. We also know from the first century, first few centuries, the Romans hate Christians. They're constantly persecuting them. And so all of these people in power with resources, they all hate Christianity and they wanted to do everything in their power to stop the spread of the gospel. And since Christians were saying that Jesus rose from the dead, you could easily stop the spread of their religion. Just go to the tomb and show him he's right here. And by the way, they didn't lose sight of where the tomb was. It was carefully documented. The most plausible deduction would be that Christ really did raise from the dead. And so when we pull all these things together, Paul's point in that courtroom stands firmly in the court of King Agrippa. Paul is not delusional. Christians are not delusional. We are out of our minds from time to time, but we are not out of our minds when it comes to the gospel. This is a reasonable faith whose message was not in a corner, but played out in full sight of the world. And so Christianity, friends, is not deceitful and therefore dangerous. With great specificity, prophecy bears witness to Jesus fulfilling the promises of God. Secondly, Christianity is not delusional since it's rational and it's been played out in public. Maybe then it's just dull. Now, if these prior things haven't made this point void, then nothing will. But it bears mentioning since it's such a common response to the message of Christianity. People just don't think it's a big deal. They might even, you might even be here to say, and so you sort of agree with the intellectual facts that Jesus is Lord. But it's not really changed us. It's just dull. Again, we find that in our passage. Take a look at verses 31 and 32. After hearing Paul's testimony, we read at the end of that chapter, the king, the governor, his sister, Bernice, they get up, they finish uh, Paul's testimony, and they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve the death or punishment. To deserve death or punishment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And off they went. In other words, what they're saying is, this guy's harmless, his message is harmless. Sort of that British sign, be calm, carry on. No big deal. If he just hadn't said anything, we just sort of let him go. Who really cares? If we go back and look what Paul said right before this in verse 29. King Agrippa noticed that Paul was trying to convince him to follow Jesus as Lord. He's trying, he noted, Agrippa knows that he's doing the same thing I'm trying to do to all of you this morning. 
And Agrippa responds by asking, are you trying to convince me to be a Christian in such a short time? Maybe some of you are saying that. Nathan, do you really think you could do this in 45 minutes, convince me to become a Christian? Paul says in verse 29, this would be my answer to you, that's you. In a short time or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And he raises his change, except for these chains. What does he mean, become such as I am? Well, it goes back to that message that he heard on that road to Damascus. Verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what he wants everyone to become. By the grace of God, Paul had come to see that he was in darkness. He learned what we sing about in Amazing Grace, that he was blind, but he came to see. Though working in the name of God, he was under the power of Satan. Believing he was working in the light, he was working in the darkness. Thinking he had a place, he didn't. I think Paul knew that. The Saul knew that. And God had given Paul light And brought him out of the power of evil and into the power of all that is good, right, and true in Christ. Paul came to love the Jesus that was he was persecuting. He loved him because all of the sins that he committed against God. Listen, all the sins that he committed against God, including the ones where he was causing Jesus's blood bought children to suffer. Even those he came to realize were forgiven. Were forgiven. They were absorbed in Christ at the cross. He was given the new life and the resurrection. And now he had a place among God's people, not by his religious deeds, but by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Not because of what he thought he ought to do, but because of what Christ did. Paul's sins were forgiven. He was loved. He had a place and it had nothing to do with him. And everything to do with Jesus. The grace and love and truth of Christ met him on that road. And it changed him forever. I wish everyone would become as I am except for these chains. See, Paul's life was changed by the free grace and love of God. He no longer needed to have his sins, to work to have his sins forgiven. He didn't have to rely upon himself. He no longer needed to perform in order to have a place, to have friends, to have a family. As he says in verse 20, he needed to repent turn away from his sin and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. In other words, act like you have been saved. He was willing to bear chains so that others wouldn't have to. Just as Christ did. Enjoy the free grace of God. You see, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just some reasonable doctrine that affirms the deity of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God received the payment for sin on the cross. And it assures those that believe, that repent of sin, that trust and follow Jesus, it assures them they can have new life. And one day, that new life that we all can taste today, we will have complete in the resurrection of our own bodies as Christ is the first fruits. And we will enjoy a world as it was supposed to be and everyone wants it to be. A world full of justice, of love, of righteousness. No more pain. No more death. No more tears. A world full of all of the nations together as one. Worshiping the Lamb of God. A world that is at rest. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you want? Paul says it's not only true, it's worth it. It's worth bearing chains for. It's so worth it, he wanted everyone to have it, including King Agrippa, Festus, Bernice, and listen, you and me. I wonder if you noticed throughout that testimony the one thing Paul did not ask for. He never asked to be released. How did he use his time of testimony with the king? I think if I would have gone into a place like that, I might have used my time to try to appeal to him get me out. It's not what Paul does. Well, how does he use his time to try and persuade the king to worship the king of kings? 
It was worth it for Paul. Paul found grace and love and forgiveness and mercy. This message, friends, is not dull. It is the greatest message in the history of the world. Nothing is better. This was the greatest news that you'll ever hear. And yet not only changed Paul's life and he bore testimony to it, changed my life. And I bear testimony to it to you. Friends, I used to be one of those people that tried to find a life here. I was able to excel in sports. I was good at baseball. And I tried to find my identity there. And it was all taken away from me. And it hurt. I tried to find uh, life and meaning and identity in my job. I tried to chase after the American dream, and I got it. I had a house. I had a car. I had travel expenses. I could go almost anywhere I wanted to. And it was empty. Even as a pastor, we moved here 10 years ago to plant this church. Today, I still struggle with this. I want, I want my Easter morning to be full. People to be saved. Social media would talk about what a great pastor Nathan is. You would come after me afterwards and say, Nathan, you're just, that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. But I don't need that, folks. I don't need it. I'm a child of the Most High God. And I have a hope that can never be taken away from me. Never. Christ has resurrected from the grave and a day is going to come when this messed up body will raise from the grave too. And we will enjoy a world together. And so no matter what comes at us in this life, we have that hope and nothing can be taken away. And that's the appeal for you. To not need the praises of the world. To not need to be a king. To not need to be a governor. To be willing to go in front of kings and governors and say, I want you to become as I am, except without chains. So that you would find the hope of a resurrection in Christ and life with Him and each other. If you have been persuaded to trust and follow Jesus, come and tell somebody. Come talk to me. We would love to talk to you more about that. And if you have found this new life, remember, this is your hope. Worship and be glad in it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings. You have come. Just as prophecy said you would. You were resurrected, not just in a corner, but in full sight of the world. And you have changed people like Paul, changed people like me, changed people all over the world. And one day you will return. And we will have the world that we wait for. And we will see you face to face and enjoy you forever. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done, are doing, and will do. We love you and pray that you would so move in our midst as to have us to love you even more, that we would be willing to bear chains and testify to the highest of courts. There's nothing better than you. We pray it in your name. Amen.